This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for February 13th. A federal court says the government has failed Canadians by letting the shortage of judges reach a point of crisis. We'll talk to the lawyer who made that case. Plus, a new report calls Canada's homeless encampments a national human rights crisis. Minister Randy Boissonneau has the federal government's response. And an Ontario brewery received hundreds of angry messages and poor reviews after hosting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for a private event. We'll ask the owner how his business is faring after the backlash. But first, Ontario says it wants any new provincial carbon taxes to go to a referendum. The power panel weighs in on the politics at play in this proposal. A federal court decision is calling out Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Justice Minister Arif Varani. It says the Liberal government has failed Canadians by letting the shortage of judges reach a point of crisis and is ordering them to appoint more. Minister Varani reacted to the ruling today. Under my watch personally, I've been in this role for about six and a half months. I've appointed 64 judges so far and more. There are more to come. Under the average year under the Harper government, they appointed 65 per year. So on that metric alone, I'm working twice as fast as the Harper government. So that's the first point. Between myself and David Lametti last year, we appointed 100 judges. As a government, since 2015, we've appointed 692 judges. But it's not enough. Those are all... But it's not enough. Those are all records in terms of the pace of judicial appointments. Can more be, can more be done? Yes, more can be done, and I'm working on that. I'm joined now by the lawyer that argued this case before the federal court. Nicholas Pope is a lawyer with Hamid Law here in Ottawa. Nicholas Pope, thanks for coming in today. Good to be here. Uh, This is a significant win uh, for you and your firm. The federal court has sided with you in saying the prime minister, the federal justice minister, they failed Canadians seeking timely justice. What compelled you to bring this case in the first place? There are two things. First off, in our practice in human rights law, we represent a lot of vulnerable litigants, uh, people who can't wait for justice, and when court cases, court hearings get cancelled last minute, it hurts them and it denies them justice. Uh, and the second was the Supreme, uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court's letter mm. last spring, which uh, really inspired this, because the Chief Justice can't go to court and do any more than send a letter. But we could do that in the public interest. Yes, and he certainly sent a very clear message with the extraordinary statements that, that he made uh, on this uh, not that long ago. But you talked about, you know, in human rights law, uh, that if a client has their hearing cancelled or delayed, is there a specific case, an individual case, that a client of yours that was affected by this that was kind of the motivation here? Yes, we had one client who was a victim of sexual harassment in the workplace. And after years of proceedings, we were a weekend away from the week-long hearing and the hearing was cancelled explicitly because there was not a judge to hear it. And so the client had to go through that trauma of preparing to be cross-examined, to speak about these really horrific incidents that happened to her, only to have it cancelled and delayed for many months. Okay, so we've known about the vacancies for a while, but you heard Justice Minister Varani here, and look, to give him uh, a fair shake. He's been the minister for six and a half months, so like the, this is not his fault, but it's, it's his problem. That, that's what comes with the big job. What did you make of his argument there that he's been appointing people at a fast rate and still we have this gap in terms of vacant judge positions? Well, I think there's more that they can do. Uh, if the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court thinks so, and Justice Brown of the Federal Court thinks right. so, There's more that they can do. I don't think he's necessarily personally responsible. I don't have anything against him, but put more resources to this problem. And they're very, they're not transparent about what's going on. They presented no evidence in federal court. They didn't give any explanation for why 
they can't be making these appointments. Maybe if they tell us why they can't make these appointments, someone could suggest a solution. But I, I imagine they can come up with a solution to this. So, so this is what I found interesting reading the, the judgment, that they rely heavily on the argument that, that you made the, you know, as the applicant, and they rely heavily on the, the letter from the Chief Justice and by the statements of the Judicial Council. And it was the respondents did not contest these claims, or that being the government. They, they just didn't argue back and contest sort of the arguments that they weren't doing enough at all. Explain to me how this went in the hearings. Yeah, so the arguments they raised were essentially the court doesn't have jurisdiction mm-hmm. and the applicant doesn't have standing. Um, for the court not having jurisdiction, essentially they're saying, we can do what we want. Right. Uh, the court can't enforce the law upon us. And of course the court rejected that. So Minister Varani says that part of the reason for the huge number of vacancies is 116 new judicial positions that the Liberal government has added since 2016. Um, What is your assessment of that argument? They added the positions, so they knew when these positions would be added. It has to go through all the readings in the House and in the Senate. Uh, And so they should have really been prepared to be filling those positions as soon as the legislation came into force. So the, the, the remedy here by the federal court, and we have no idea what the federal government's going to do, they're just studying it and responding to it, uh, is there's about 70 to 74 vacancies right now, I think, at, at the various judicial appointments that they, they control. The remedy is to get it down into the 40s, which is where it was in 2016. Judge Brown has said that's a reasonable uh, uh, level of vacancy, and he suggests a reasonable amount of time. I don't know exactly what that time frame is. What kind of an impact would 30 fewer vacancies, 30 and change fewer vacancies have in the system in your view? Yeah, it would cut the vacancies in approximately half. Uh, 30 more judges will make a difference. I don't think it will solve the problems. There's other problems as well in our court system that won't mm. be solved by filling these vacancies. But this is a fairly low-hanging fruit. There's, there's more complicated ones. This one's not that difficult to solve. I, I know we had a couple of difficult years in the justice system because of COVID and the pandemic and what that did to court. I have friends who are criminal lawyers and couldn't go and, and all of the challenges there. But we've also had like the Jordan case, which mandated certain timelines to get this stuff done. And we're still seeing, uh, you know, a, a court, the, this court decision pointed out that the Court of King's Bench of Alberta has reported that more than 22% of ongoing criminal cases are still passing the 30-month deadline to be heard. And a lot of those involve violent crime. How is it that with such clear direction from the court in a case like Jordan, we still have a situation here where there aren't enough judges because there doesn't seem to be a shortage of lawyers who want to sit on the bench. How is it we're still in this situation in your view? I don't know. I wish the government would tell us. We don't, well, we, we wanted to speak to Mr. Verani and we played some of his tape there today and, and maybe he'll be available to speak with us tomorrow, but the, the court doesn't give a strict timeline here. How quickly do you think is, is, is fast enough to, to meet this of reducing the number of vacancies by about 50%? Well, we submitted that the court, or we submitted that the government is able to appoint judges within uh, six months or, or nine months of of being aware of that this position would be vacant mm-hmm. uh, or three months of the vacancy being opened up. And that was based upon not our own speculation, but on past appointments. There are some appointments that were made within just two days of the vacancy being opened up. So they've demonstrated they can do that. Um, so certainly, while there's no explicit direction as to what timely means in the decision, I would interpret that as within the next six to 12 months. I think that's a very reasonable mm-hmm. amount of time to appoint all of uh, the positions that are vacant. And so we'll be watching this closely to see if those numbers are going down.
In the decision, you see some of the vacancies that were listed at the time of the filing, I guess, going back to, to the summer of 2023. We're talking 1,800 days, you know, for federal court positions. Ontario Superior Court, 742 days. Um, these are really extraordinary vacancies at very important jobs. Yeah, it shouldn't happen. And I think that's why you see such strong language in the decision from Justice Brown about the appalling nature, how untenable it is. And this is just echoing the language from the Chief Justice. This is not normal. And that's why, that's why the letter was written by the Chief Justice. And that's why we had to bring this court case. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping we won't have to bring another, but we will if we need to. Just a, as a final point, uh, to go back to the client you talked about who was ready to go for that hearing on a sexual harassment case at work, and it was delayed uh, because of a, a lack of a judge. What happened with that case? What happened with that client? Did they get the remedy they were looking for? It ended up uh, going almost to another hearing a number of months later, and then we settled a few days before the hearing. Uh, so all is well with that client, but all is well with that client months later than it should have been if we'd been able to get a hearing at the proper date. And she had to experience that trauma of just preparing for, for a really difficult situation to talk about these horrific events that happened to her. Nicholas Pope, uh, congratulations on the win. Uh, thanks for coming in and speaking with us today. Thank sure. you. The RCMP says it has arrested one of its own officers. The force's National Security Enforcement Team arrested a frontline officer in Alberta on Saturday. Constable Eli Ndatue is accused of accessing non-top secret RCMP record systems in order to leak information to a foreign actor. And that alleged foreign actor is the Republic of Rwanda. The officer is facing three charges, including two charges under the Criminal Code and one charge under the Security of Information Act. The accused is scheduled to appear in court on March 11th. A first-of-its-kind report on homelessness is out today, and it paints a bleak picture. Canada's housing advocate says the growing number of encampments across the country are now a, quote, life-and-death matter. I spoke with the federal housing advocate earlier today. People's uh, human rights to dignity, to the basics of survival are not being met. The encampments are a physical manifestation of exactly how broken our housing and homelessness system is and exactly how far away people are from having their human right to housing realized. Marie-José Hull is calling for a national action plan by August of this year. I'm joined now by the Minister of Employment, Randy Boissonneau, for the government's response to this and on a few other matters. Minister, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Um, the uh, housing advocate is focusing heavily on ten, uh, homeless encampments, and your city of Edmonton has been dealing with this uh, in, in recent months. She says you need a plan to deal with this as a government, and police need to stop uh, tearing them down. What's your response to this? Well, David, I appreciate the uh, report of uh, Madame Houle, and you know she's hit the nail on the head in terms of the fact that uh, better coordination needs to be in the system. We have to make sure that uh, cities, provinces, and our federal government are working together. And it's not this wave of encampments that has woken us up to this issue, David. I mean, we put $100 million into uh, homeless shelters and into dealing with the encampment situations before uh, things got really cold in the winter. And you're right to raise my own city of Edmonton. Uh, Mayor Amarjeet Sohi has indicated a, a housing uh, state of emergency. And I think I want to go back to what Madam Hula said, which is the coordination, federal, provincial, 
uh, municipal, and in cases in many cities, also making sure that First Nations uh, organizations are around the table. This is a, a, a thorny, complex problem, and money is going to solve it, but so is coordination. And I, I want to be very clear. I spoke with Minister Fraser about this, and I know you'll be uh, speaking with him at some point in the future, but the government is working on this. They're, this is why... Uh, funding for the Housing Accelerator Fund, the Rapid Housing Initiative. We need pathways, David, for people to get from being in tents through to shelters to permanent housing. And that is a coordination effort that we have to do with provinces and other orders of government. And so sitting down, making sure we're getting this done, putting the politics aside and getting people housed, that is certainly our government's plan. So the housing advocate wants a plan on this by August 31st of this year. I mean, is that a realistic time frame? Does this require a summit like you just organized on auto theft? I mean, that came together fairly quickly. When you look at people sleeping in tents in a Canadian winter and the things that have been happening on the streets of the city, it feels like there should be some urgency on this one as well. Well, the report came out today, so I know Minister Fraser and our government are going to take on board everything that um, Madame Houle has said to us today. And look, we've come out of now two cabinet meetings where the message is very clear, build, build, build. And I think just so that everybody understands what we've already done as a government, billions of dollars to make sure that social and affordable housing uh, stock in this country is protected. Because if we lose that social and affordable housing stock, David, then we, we see more people uh, in precarious housing situation. And so we will continue to focus in that space. And what we're also doing in the, in the short, medium, and long term is unlocking the power of the private sector. We need 3.5 million homes over the next 10 years. That is a $2.5 trillion lift. Mm-hmm. The government of Canada can't afford that. That's our entire uh, economy for a year. But things like putting $20 billion into the CMHC loan fund to make it easier for uh, builders to build, making sure that we take the GST off of uh, purpose-built rentals, that's also going to build hundreds of thousands of units. So it's a supply issue, it's a coordination issue, and it's making sure that social and affordable housing, that we have more of those units, and that's where we will stay focused as a federal government. There are issues here, though, that I, I know jurisdiction overlaps on this in, sure in, in, yep. in multiple directions. Yep. Uh, but as uh, Ms. Wool uh, pointed out, you know, the, the indigenous population of this country is overrepresented, uh, statistically, proportionally, in a lot of these tent cities, these homeless encampments that we're seeing. So there's a clear federal role uh, and some responsibility on that there. I mean, how do you deal with this specifically in terms of targeting the indigenous population that may end up in these situations? Yeah, and David, I'm going to push back there because indigenous Albertans are Albertans too. It's not like because it's an indigenous issue, it's entirely the federal government's responsibility. And I'm going to be really blunt. We have that ethic across particularly the West too often. And we've seen ourselves end up in court cases where billions of dollars have to be paid out generations later because of provincial inaction when it comes to doing right by Indigenous peoples. And this issue of encampments and homelessness touches a chord with me. It's in the downtown of my city. It's, in, it's across the river. We're seeing this across prairie cities. And so the Housing Advocates Report should be a wake-up call for provincial governments to do more with Indigenous groups. And look, we all have to get around the table. We all have to do this. And... I will look at the government of Alberta and say, where is their money in this particular issue? And so if we have provinces that are prepared to get around the table, like we've seen in British Columbia, that are prepared to be willing actors to solve this issue, then I think we'll do right by the folks that find themselves in tents uh, sleeping out in the cold. 
No, I certainly wasn't trying to suggest with my question that other orders of government don't have responsibility for this, but I was just speaking to the constitutional nature uh, of division of, of responsibilities in the country. And this is something we have a federal government, uh, f- multiple federal departments to, to sort of manage. But I guess just uh, how do you, just as a final point on, on, on sure. the report, is how do you start this process? I, I know Minister Fraser. I know he had travel and couldn't join us today. But but how do you start this process? I mean, is it something like what we saw with the with the auto summit? Is it a first minister's meeting? Like this is happening right across the country. These encampments. It, it seems to be something that requires some urgency. So I think you're going to see this happen at a, at a you know at a city level, but also in a more coordinated way across the country. And I'll let Minister Fraser get on the, on the show and and share with you some of his thinking on this. But I can be very clear with you that the work on this has already started, David. There's a an organization run by uh, national indigenous and provincial indigenous housing organizations, and the organization is called Nishi, and that has about 300 million dollars mm-hmm. out of the four billion dollar uh, rural and remote indigenous housing fund that was in I think budget 22 and so that work is underway and you've seen some progress on that fund in British Columbia we're seeing some success in Alberta as well and I think everybody just needs to realize that housing is a right and that we have to get this done we have to put the politics aside uh, and public and private dollars need to be directed in the right spaces so that we can get the work done you had an announcement today, uh, you and the other ministers on the economic team, uh, announcing you had 60 housing agree- agreements with smaller Indeed. and medium-sized uh, communities across the country. The focus to this point has largely been on the big cities. That's where we've seen a lot of the, the deals being done. Um, the challenge, though, Minister, and this is where your employment uh, job comes into this, <laughs> finding the people to build. It's hard to do it in large urban centers where you have economies of scale and critical mm-hmm. mass. It's even harder to do it in rural and small-town Canada. I, I mean, how do you make this happen? Because the money helps, but you need people to do the work. Yeah, we need people to do the work, and that's why the partnerships that we have with the provinces through the labor market transfer agreements are so important. We train over 200,000 people in the construction trades alone per year. About a million people get trained through these agreements that take place across the country. And I was in Winnipeg earlier this year, uh, David, to talk about how we can uh, do more to scope in people with foreign credentials. So 6,600 people in the health field are going to be scoped in to have their credentials recognized. And my part of the announcement today was in the healthcare field related, and that is we forgave, uh, we added 50% to the loan, student loan forgiveness for doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, family docs, so that people in rural Canada can have the healthcare service they need. So if you are a nurse, your forgiveness now will go up to 30000 If you're a doc, it's going to go up to 60000 and practitioners, doctors, and nurses who, uh, after they've practiced one year in a rural and remote community, uh, they apply within 90 days of that first year, and they get uh, that up to that maximum amount of their student loans uh, forgiven. And we're going to make sure that this applies to uh, small and medium-sized communities of all sizes, because we've put $200 billion into the healthcare system. And to your point, now we've got to make sure that the people are there to do the work across the country, including in rural and remote Canada. But you, you Minister, and look, the loan forgiveness, I, I think there's a lot of people, who, especially I know some, some have doctor friends. My mom was a nurse. They racked up big debts going to school. I understand the appeal of the loan forgiveness, but there's also a labor supply challenge there. And I, 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 by enticing people to go to the smaller parts of Canada, you know, the more rural parts of Canada, are you worried about cannibalizing a workforce from the more urban parts? Because it, it, the, the issue is supply again, right? There aren't enough nurses, there aren't enough doctors. So if you're enticing them to move from one part of the country to another, 
you create a gap where you, when you fill another gap, potentially. So, David, you've put your finger on it. A, we have to have more Canadians that want these jobs and are going to fill those jobs because we have an aging population. I mean, I'll, I'll give a statistic from the skilled trades that keeps me up at night. We have 700,000 skilled trades about to retire uh, between now and 2028. In the healthcare field, we're looking at about a 49,000 person shortage over the next uh, 10 years. And so we need more Canadians and permanent residents, people who are settling here to take on these jobs. But the other thing we have to do, David, is we have to scope in more people who have these skills and this education from other countries and shorten the pathway for them to have their credentials recognized. And that's some of the work that I'm doing with my colleagues across the country. Uh, but I can also say the money that uh, we put in the system to make sure that foreign credentials can get sped up is really important. I'll give you an example. 50% of dentists in this country uh, are foreign born. And we're finding now that for every doctor that's retiring, we probably need two new, new dentists to replace them. And so one, one of the things that the funding that I announced in Winnipeg is going to do, it's going to shorten the amount of time that it takes a foreign trained dentist from three years down to one year. Saskatchewan has gone further. They've taken the amount of time it takes for a nurse who has credentials from another jurisdiction from three years, get, wait for it, down to 14 weeks. That's the kind of acceleration that I want to see taking place across the country. Even Alberta did a really good thing by scoping in nurses from 13 different countries, and they thought they'd get two or 300 people applying. They had 1,700 apply. 1,000 of those people are now practicing, and the other 700 have a pathway to have their credentials. So I guess the bottom line, David, is we've got to walk and chew gum at the same time, and that's exactly what we're going to be doing. Employment Minister Randy Bossano, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, David. The Ontario government will repeal Bill 124, the law it passed in 2019 to cap public sector wage increases. The move comes after the Provincial Court of Appeal found the law to be unconstitutional. Do you believe that Bill 124 was a mistake? Well, we just believe it should be government's decision, not the court's. I always say Parliament is supreme, meaning the people are supreme. People elect the Parliament, they should make the decisions. But in saying all that, we respect the decision uh, of the courts, and uh, we're going to move forward on this. Okay, so how are the politics around this decision going to play out? We're going to talk about that with the Power Panel. Emily Nicola is a columnist with Le Devoir. Michelle Cadario is a former federal liberal campaign director. Francoise Boivin is a former NDP MP. And here with me in the studio is Kate Harrison. She's a conservative political analyst. Uh, hello, gang. Uh, Kate, let, let's start with you. Uh, Doug Ford's legal streak with... Uh, collective bargaining issues is is uh, continuing to go go against them despite what he said there. But it's a pretty big climb down. They're not going to appeal this. They're not going to ask the Supreme Court to deal with it. Yeah. They're going to eat the cost of this. And we're talking billions of dollars this is going to cost them. Yeah, and billions that have already been paid, right? Mm -hmm. So when it was first overturned by the lower court, there was a ton of expenditure because of the reopen clause that exists with some of the unions. So a lot of money is already going out um, to, to chase this down. So I think that the government's made a decision, let's not throw some good money after bad. We're already here. Uh, and when I think about what happened uh, 2019 to now, the relationship with workers has changed quite a bit with this government. The relationship yeah. with unions has changed quite a bit. And they were quite honest. The Ford government was honest that that was something that needed some work. So I'm thinking that maybe they believe there's some goodwill that can be achieved here by backing down on this and as they enter some of those tough negotiations. Uh, but the climate of 2019 when this was first introduced and what I would observe is a more ideological approach at that time from yes. the Ford government than what we have now, which is more of a small p political approach. 
that's been a big change, and I think that's why they're making this decision. Yeah, Michelle, term two Doug Ford is very different than term one Doug Ford, certainly in his approach of things. I mean, just look at him in the federal government, for, for example. Uh, but, you know, you heard him there. He didn't like the decision. Um, you know, the courts and the charter is kind of there to keep governments in check. Uh, but how do you, th- you think there's any kind of sort of a political fallout here for Ford, or will people be happy just that they can get the pay raise they need? Well, I don't think that uh, anyone who is against this bill, um, forcefully, the teachers, the, 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 um, the other public sector workers and the nurses, um, they're not exactly going to become friends overnight. I don't think Doug Ford is doing a great favor and that this is a great, you know, um, golden hand that's being put out all of a sudden to the unions. He knew he had a stinker of a case and he knew that there was absolutely no hope going forward and trying to appeal and just getting another loss, um, likely before the elect- his own election. So I think he's doing the right thing politically, is cutting, cutting back, uh, um, you know, and repealing the law. And, you know, now he's going to have to do the, it the old-fashioned way, roll up his sleeves and actually negotiate and sit down and collect a bargaining around the table um, and try to come to terms um, as they go forward with these union agreements. So... Uh, I think he's just cutting his losses. Um, and politically, I think that that's the right thing. Yeah, Francois, the knock-on effect of, of this is going to be interesting because they, they capped, you know, the post-secondary sector, for example, in Ontario has had their grants capped and their tuition frozen. And it was the wage restraint from 124 that allowed them to kind of function in that environment. Now that's gone. There's a cap on, on foreign student permits that's going to affect their bottom line. The ripple effect of this could be pretty profound in Ontario. Of course it could be, uh, and it was another way for the government to seem to be saving money at a certain time, and now it's going to be all spent anyway. And Michelle is right, they knew that, because I cannot believe that uh, government lawyers told them that this piece of legislation had a stand to uh, a leg to stand on. Uh, it's another one that just complete the factor that uh, negotiation is uh, the way to do it. Uh, the protection from the the, the, the Charter of Right uh, uh, includes uh, 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 the right to assemble in unions, also includes the right to negotiate. So when you remove that and you play the, a bit of the dictator, uh, well, that's what's going to happen. So they try mm-hmm. to save on one hand. And then they'll have to spend, if not already spent, on, on, on the other. He played it just right for the tone, though, uh, giving an impression that he was right. It's the court that are wrong and uh, sad because it should be us, representative of the people. But as representative of the people, they're supposed to up, uphold the, the law, the Charter of Rights, and, and, and so on. So, but he, he moved along right away, uh, knowing he was wrong. Emily, just smart to cut his losses on this one and move on, you know, stop the the endless uh, litigation uh, with labor? Uh, yes, especially that uh, in the uh, the time uh, that 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 was spent between uh, you know this initial decision and what we're seeing now, there was also the almost uh, resorting to the notwithstanding clause in another labor right. conflict that happened, mm-hmm. and we saw how that turned out uh, for Dork Ford. So part of me, you know, I cannot know, but part of me thinks as well that some lessons were learned there in terms of what happens uh, when you think uh, that labor law doesn't matter in a, especially in a post-pandemic environment uh, and especially um, with, you know, workers that, you know, you cannot say that the people you're saving money on the back on 
of are, are, you know, people who are overpaid or people that, you know, are not, you know, the kind of middle class people that the court is, is, is wanting to defend. And so that's, um, that's also, I think, per perhaps one of the, the factors that explain the difference in the different, the, the Doug Ford's plural that we've seen over the time. Yeah, I, mean, I was just going to add, timing is everything, and if they were to appeal, mm -hmm. they likely would have gotten that ruling June of 2026, right, mm -hmm. as they're in the middle of their next <laughs> provincial election. So in yes. thinking about the po just the politics yep. here, because the cost is enormous, it's going to be very painful to not appeal this, yeah. but if you want a negative ruling coming down in the middle of an election, hijacking the election, probably not. Okay, speaking of just the politics, he, Ford was also out talking to reporters today about an omnibus bill that he was previewing, calling it the Get It Done Act, which, you know, is a play to his election slogan. Get it done. But it includes a, a provision that will force future governments to hold a referendum if they want to bring in a provincial carbon tax. Just listen to this. If a future government ever tries to raise the carbon tax like uh, they did before, uh, they're going to have to have a referendum. Let the people have a voice. Okay, so Francoise, uh, he's taken a shot at Bonnie Crombie there today, calling her the queen of the carbon tax. Uh, but, you know, you've sat in Parliament. Uh, you cannot bind the hands of a future government with a piece of legislation today. They can just change that legislation going forward. So, like, this is symbolically interesting the legal weight of it is is dubious. But what do you make of the political <laughs> argument here of trying to say we're going to bind the hands of a future government? They have to have a referendum. Well, you must think people are dumb to believe that. But uh, he, he he's hoping that there might be some that will believe it. It it caters to his crowd. Anti-carbon tax. It plays uh, on teams that we hear at the federal level every day, every day, every day. So to give an impression that it will not happen because we're having this in a piece of legislation, I think it's just uh, uh, setting the stage for what's to come in, tw in 2026 in, uh, in the Ontario election. If I was Ms. Stiles, the, the leader of the NDP, I'd be a bit insulted since I'm the, uh, uh, the leader of the, uh, the official opposition and he's already making it a... Uh, a battle between himself and uh, and and Ms. Crom uh, Crombie. So uh, it, it's political. It's political play, and uh, it's such a bad word. Uh, carbon tax. I didn't miss that in Florida. We didn't hear that much uh, <laughs> over there. No, I, I would suspect they don't talk about that much in uh, the state that Ron DeSantis runs. They uh, love it. But Michelle, uh, you know, on, on this point, I mean, there is a carbon tax, a carbon price, whatever phrase you want to use in Ontario, but it's the federal backstop. So even if a re referendum would hold and be accepted as, as necessary, unless the federal price goes away, this kind of doesn't matter. And I guess maybe that's what the conservatives are hoping for with the federal election in the offing. Yeah, it's kind of wily on Doug Ford's part, you know, he can kind of stake out a position on carbon tax that is largely irrelevant because it's not right now a provincial tax. Um, and also, you know, can easily be overturned by the next parliament if they chose to actually impose uh, something else. But it's not a direct kind of hit at against the prime minister either, mm -hmm. who he's, you know, working with on a whole bunch of different issues. So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to give him points for being crafty, um, you know, and, you know, he's got the, the slick title of Get It Done Act and throwing in some things that even I like, you know, the car registration online. I'm all <laughs> for it. Um, but. You know, it is a bunch of nonsense, and it's not actually doing something for anybody. It's not advancing the climate agenda in any way. It's not pretending to do so. 
And I think it's just kind of a bit of a cop-out, and maybe it's like a little bit of a handout to uh, to Mr. Polyev to say that he's you know doing something to support the, the fight against the carbon tax without actually getting his hands dirty. So, so Emily, it is crafty and potentially consequence-free, but also in the same news conference in which he said Parliament must be supreme when it comes to matters, he says Parliament <laughs> can't make up its own mind about a carbon tax without having a referendum first. So I guess it's just the courts that can't interfere. <laughs> yeah, l- listen, I'm not going to repeat what everyone says, but I thought that was exactly my thought. There is some really good material there for a class on political philosophy and just like what it means <laughs> for people <laughs> to be sovereign yeah. and what. And generally speaking, I am a person that really supports more, uh, you know, direct uh, democracy, participatory democracy. So, I mean, for me, the question then becomes, you know, what else do we want people to have a say on uh, rather than just vote every four years and just shut up? Uh, So, um, is that really democracy? And so, but that's just a philosophical thought that I just (laughs) thought for it is inspiring me because the rest of it, concretely speaking, as everyone else said, it's uh, unconsequential. Okay, so it's power and politics and philosophy tonight. This is what we need to add to the show. <laughs> but, but Kate, Kate uh, just on the point like he, uh, that, that Francois uh, alluded to, he didn't go after Merritt Stiles today. He no. went after Bonnie Crombie. Yeah. Uh, shared potential base because former mayor of Mississauga, is that what the issue he sees her as the bigger threat? Is that that's his tell today? Yeah, well, and the polling would bear that out to yeah. be accurate, right? Most recent polling, despite Bonnie Crombie being pretty new on the scene, has already, uh, you know, she's already leapfrogged Merritt, Merritt Style, so you can see why he'd be making that tie. She also was a federal uh, liberal MP, uh, yeah. and they are kind of branded as the, the carbon tax party, so I think smart for him to, to make that distinction. And we're still two and a half years out from the next election. So uh, if this mm-hmm. is the tone and tenor now, I can only imagine it will be in 2026. Yeah, that's a very good point. I want to thank the power panel, Kate Harrison, Francois Boyer, Michelle Cadario, and Emily Nicola. Thanks so much, gang. Thank you. See you. Thank you. It's a place that markets itself as selling beer and good times. But ever since hosting the Prime Minister last week, the owner of a Bowmanville, Ontario brewery says his business has been flooded with hundreds of hateful messages, phone calls, and negative Google reviews. Trudeau was invited to the Brewer's Pantry by Durham Liberal candidate Robert Rock, who chose the venue to host a small event for supporters. Brewer's Pantry owner Chris O'Coin joins us now to talk about the aftermath of the Prime Minister's visit. Uh, Chris, thanks for taking the time on what's been a pretty tough week. It's good to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you. Thanks for having us on. So, so let's go back to when your brewery was asked to host uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau la- last week. What was going through your mind when, when you got this request? Well, it was more, uh, we did it for Rob Rock. Um, he's running for the uh, by-election uh, to replace Aaron O'Toole. Uh, and he started off as uh, a friend. Like he, He's a craft beer lover. Uh, he's got a craft beer podcast. Um, so he came in and started we bonded over that and started talking. I didn't even know he was a politician. Um, and then he brought it up in a conversation uh, that he'd like to host a, an event, sort of to kick off his campaign and get some excitement going. I said, sure, if you want to book an event on a midweek and bring in 50 people in here, absolutely, let's do it. Uh, it was a few days uh, before the event was scheduled that uh, he said he'd be having a VIP coming in and uh, said that it was the prime minister and uh, for me to get ready and if it would be okay. I was uh, honored and uh, I uh, agreed to it, of course, and we uh, 
uh, yeah, he came in and, so, you know, security did a few uh, things ahead of time and make sure it's prepped and make sure the area is good. So, uh, yeah, that's how it kind of went down. So, so it all went fine, at least on the first night. But, but since then, you've had negative reviews. You've had bad phone calls. What, what's the fallout been? Yeah, like, like you said, the event went amazing. It's uh, Every politician was here. A lot of local community figures, a lot of people from the community came out. It was a lot of excitement. Uh, the event was beautiful. Uh, we had a good talk with uh, the Prime Minister. He really loved our business concept and loved uh, the beer. Uh, and I knew something was wrong because I started, during the event, I started getting uh, all of a sudden bad uh, Google review, bad Google review, bad Google review, started getting emails. I was like, oh, something's going on. Uh, I posted a quick pic out of pride to my followers thinking maybe I'd get a little good ribbon out of it, but, uh, you know, people would think it was cool. Uh, but that instantly got uh, bombarded. Um, but yeah, I found out like the local uh, Bowmanville community page. Uh, that's kind of a lot of hate on that page. Uh, they got wind of that the prime minister was in town and uh, word spread pretty quickly and the chaos started even before I posted anything. So, so wait, okay, uh, you were getting hit with negative Google reviews while the prime minister was there, like the, the reaction was happening in real time because you posted on social oh, media? Yeah. Really? It happened <laughs> oh, yeah. that fast? No, I didn't post anything on social media. It came from the Bowmanville community group. So is this a Facebook because page? They, is this a... a yeah, a, it's is one that of those community group Facebook pages that everybody likes to complain and bitch and, you know, complain about their neighbors and, you know, do this and do that, whatever they're used for. Um, they started noticing all the SUVs out in the back and they noticed all the police and the presence downtown Bowmanville. Of course, it was a big deal. And then everybody's like, oh, they're going into the Brewer's Pantry. Judo's in the Brewer's Pantry. Everybody go, oh my God, it's chaos. And then, yeah, it started right from there. And then I posted a picture, like I said, on, on social media. And uh, oof, it didn't take long. So people in Bowmanville who don't like the prime minister found out he was in town, found out he was at your store, and just started hammering you online. That's how it all went. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. H has it slowed down? Has it persisted? Like, like where are things now? Well, because of the media attention, of course, uh, we're getting, this is really ramped up. We did a, a piece for Global News yesterday that's been in the papers. Um, I put a post out last night, uh, um, you know, thanking those that have uh, sent their love, sent their great Google reviews. Mm. Uh, all the bad Google reviews we were able to get off the uh, Google because, you know, anti-bullying and hate. Right. Um, so we were left with a lot of great Google reviews, but then I guess Google got to those two figuring something's up and something's going on. So those were taken down, but yeah, I put up the post yesterday telling people that I read those posts. Thanks for the love, the support. And, uh, oh man, I think there's a couple of hundred or more, uh, comments on that. I left the comments up for that to, sh you know, to show people what we're dealing with, but there's a lot of love coming out of that. Um, but yeah, phone calls all day. All night phone calls. What are they saying to you? Uh, oh, do you want me to say them? On the air? Well, I mean, kids maybe kids maybe within earshot, but you know, you can give us a, a sense of the flavor. <laughs> yeah, it's like after you, you're the worst person ever. How dare you have that traitor, that pedophile? Uh, that's the worst mistake you could ever made. We're going to cancel you. Look what happened to Budweiser. Um, 
you uh we hope your business goes under we hope you're you're you'll be dead within a week like your business will be dead within a week um not crazy direct threats uh there was people saying oh we hope you maybe your business is going to catch fire we you know we hope uh your family gets sick you're the worst human being ever allowing that trader into your store and these are coming from Yellowknife. these are coming from newfoundland uh alberta a lot of from alberta uh all out of bc uh call this morning from uh ohio chicago so the states some people in the states uh these are and i'm and i'm once in a while i'll answer one to say buddy what's going on give me a break but uh you know, I mostly let them go to voicemail, and they'll leave voice. They'll leave voicemail, so I have a good collection of voicemails for sure. This is uh, this is rough, man. This is awful stuff. I, I mean, unfortunately, you're not the first business owner we've talked to that's had this happen to them. I mean, did you ever imagine something like this would happen when you agreed to this? And and, <laughs> and I mean, what's it like just to be in the crossfires of all of this hate? I had no idea, but I'm not ready for it because we, we love everybody that comes through our doors. And, and when you come through our door, you're our friend. People always leave here thinking, hey, that place is great. We got great friends in there. And that's the, the relationship that we have with our, I don't like to call them customers because everybody I've met is, is great friends. Um, so I'm not ready for this hate. I don't know what, uh, I've never been on, in this position in my life before. Um, I post things online uh, for our, our, our events and usually we get, great love we get all this response and like i was saying if if i would i thought i'd get a little bit of good ribbing from our from our followers a little laughter but people would think it was really cool i found out quickly that there's a lot of hate out there so that first night it was hard to sleep it's been hard to sleep uh, since this but the first night it's hard to sleep because that's what i'm focusing on i'm like oh i made this horrible mistake my business is doomed you know this business i love and work so hard for and have this great dream um is doomed but man since then how i'm getting through it is is the love and the support and we're getting a lot of that too so i don't want people to think it's doom and gloom there's a lot of love and support people are coming out from all over canada too for and and love and support and those that are living within bowmanville have flooded our doors uh people are coming all the way from toronto people are coming from all around the gta guy just walked in and handed me money today i didn't want to take it but he said this is we want to support you anyway we sold out of all of our t-shirts we've had a record day all weekend so it's a lot of activity and a lot of positives coming out of this so that's what we're kind of concentrating on and i'm feeling the love as well as that hate which i'm not concentrating on so so the the, the hate has been met with a response of love and support as you say and i i guess which which is a good thing it's certainly good for your bottom line, because you're, you're obviously worried about what something like this could do. I, just as a, as a final point, Chris, I mean, what do you want people to take away uh, from what has happened to you over the past week? Well, I posted today, too, I'm not your elected official. I'm not a politician. I'm not, I'm very middle of the road when it comes to politics. I don't discuss it with people. You know, we, we, we all have opinions, but I'm, I'm not your your uh, your elected official. I'm not telling you to vote for Trudeau. I'm not saying I support Trudeau. I'm not saying I support anybody. We support people that come through our door. Uh, and I want people to come through the door. And I hope this isn't, uh, you know, they're just going to come in now and then don't show support. And then down the road, we're, we're uh, going to suffer. I don't think that's going to happen because once they meet us and know what we're all about in here and this business concept and how we are supporting 
so many local local breweries hyper local breweries and restaurants and that's what we're all about and once people realize the love that we have um i think we're going to make a heck of a lot of new friends out of this and people will keep coming back well chris acoin I, I hope the the hate stops and, and the love keeps flowing that's chris acoin the owner of the brewer's pantry thanks for your time today sir thank you so much That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.